The fourth annual Philadelphia Podcast Festival is happening this year on August 19th through 28th. More than 30 of Philly's premier podcasts will record free live shows at Tattooed Mom, Amalgam Comics and Coffee House, and other venues across the city. Check out the full schedule and learn about our sponsors and partners at phillypodfest.com and on Facebook and Twitter. See you at the festival. This is episode 36 of Tegan Goes Vegan. I am your host, Tegan Karuna. Before we get started, I want to plug my live show coming up on August 28th at 3 p.m. at Tattooed Mom. It is part of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival, which I help organize and I also helped co-found. And it's going to be super fun. We're going to be taste testing lots of vegan food and there's going to be a panel of guests. And you can find much more information about it on my Facebook Tegan Goes Vegan podcast. All the details are going to be there. So check it out. It's going to be super fun. And if you're here in the Philly area and you can make it, I highly recommend it. There's other great shows that are going on the same day. So you should stick around for those before or after. Get some of Tattooed Mom's amazing vegan food. And if you are a drinker, they have great drinks. And if you're not a drinker, they have great non-alcoholic drinks. And it's just going to be super fun. And I really look forward to meeting anybody who is able to come to the show. So this week's interview is with Jack Norris, who is the founder, one of the founders of Vegan Outreach. And you will find that I didn't actually know that about him when I contacted him to interview, to be on the show. Um, I only know him from his work as an RD. I have used his website for nutrition information when people were asking me questions about vegan nutrition and I was like I don't know he was one of the people who I always turned to for really accurate or really scientifically based information about things so um it's deeply embarrassing that I didn't know that he <laughs> was um, a leading force in vegan outreach and I know that there are a lot of people who disagree with vegan outreach's work and I hope that if you're listening to this and you already don't care for vegan outreach, just listen to the interview. As always, like I am looking to have a respectful conversation with a person and really, really ask them questions that I just want to know the answers to. I'm, not, you know, I'm not here to debate with anybody. I'm, I just actively listen and then ask follow-up questions. That's kind of my, my deal. So I know that this has the potential for people to get not super excited about the fact that he's on the show, but I think, as always, that it's valuable to listen to and talk to people with lots of different viewpoints and and learn from them. Even if you don't agree with everything that they say, maybe there's a little nugget of something great in there that you can you can take to heart and that can really help you be a better advocate and a and a better vegan and a more compassionate human being, which I think, I hope, is what all of us want to do. So that being said, Jack and I kind of talk about his whole progression when he became vegan, finding the Animal Liberation album in a record store back in the day, 
we also talk about founding vegan outreach and what that was like and, and kind of the bumps in the road along the way and what they're doing now to look into the impact and effect of their outreach strategies. We also talk about how he became a registered dietitian because he wanted to provide accurate information to help people become and stay healthy vegans, which I think is admirable. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have spoken with him. And I think that his, that, that our conversation is a really interesting one. He's a person who has dedicated his life to vegan activism. And I think there's, there is always something to be learned from, from a person who has that much experience and perspective on what it is that we all care about. So here he is, Jack Norris. So when did you become vegan? I became vegan in June of 1988. And was there, was it like a... Was it a slow process? Was it kind of an overnight thing? Um, it was. It took about maybe a year to from when I started changing my diet before I became gave up mammals and birds, and then fish. Maybe five months later, and then I gave up dairy and eggs. Um, a couple months later, after that, I think I gave up eggs first, actually. Um, because of how battery chickens were treated. But it's hard for me to remember exactly when I gave up what. But it started, um, I started thinking about how animals are treated on a fishing trip I went on where I was feeling like I should be rescuing the fish, not killing them. And so that started it. And that was actually um, a couple years before that. And it took me another year to start thinking about it harder. And then another year before I went vegan. What do you think that year between when you had that first realization that, that, you know, the way that animals were being treated was not, didn't sit right with you to actually taking action? Like, what do you think was going on? Or do you remember what was going on for yourself, like, in that year? Like, what were you thinking about? Were you looking for information? Were you just kind of processing on your own? Yeah, one fairly significant thing happened in that I was in a record store during that year, and I came across a, rec a record called Animal Liberation, which was a benefit album for PETA that was put out at the time by some uh, like new wave and industrial rock groups. And so I started listening to that, and I actually couldn't listen to much of it because it disturbed me so much at the time. Um, but over time, I, I listened, I, I read, you know, the information that came with it. And because it was for PETA, I eventually wrote to PETA and got on their mailing list and received their information. So that that was a big part of why I ended up transitioning. But I think until I came across that record album, I felt like there wasn't any sort of you know, I had never heard of vegetarians. I didn't know that animal rights was a thing. Um, it was just me being bothered by what I was seeing. Uh, you know, the animal rights movement was very small at the time, and it was relatively new. And veganism certainly was not a household word like it is now. So I think a lot of it was just having no um, sense of the ability to go vegetarian or vegan. You know, it was only 
it wasn't a part of what people did that I was aware of. And so really just stumbling on that album was your first glimpse into the animal rights, animal, the whole vegan world, which is that one album. Definitely that was it. Um, And at one point I also, a professor of mine in philosophy had a copy of Animal Liberation and I took a quick look through it and I thought, oh, I agree with this. Um, I think that came somewhat after the record album. It's really hard for me to tell, to remember, but that was also those two things for the first times I'd ever heard that anyone else talking about animals and I was thinking about them. So, and so you went, you, you kind of made the, uh, not, it doesn't sound like it was a very slow transition, but kind of a vegetarian first and then everything else after kind of transition. Like what, how did that process feel for you? Like, was that, did you realize that you were working toward being vegan or were you just kind of like making changes and then the next change was a natural, um, you know, like a natural progression for you? I had had a health teacher in high school who talked about the fact, and in fact, he did mention the idea that vegetarians existed. I don't know that I thought about it again until I went vegetarian, but I remembered once I did that he had said, that you have to drink milk for calcium and that there's just no other way to get calcium. In fact, he almost got teary-eyed. He got a little choked up about the fact that you could only get calcium from milk. I saw my chiropractor as I was wanting to be vegan but drinking a glass of milk each day and he said, well, leafy greens have calcium. You you don't need milk to get calcium. And right then is when I went vegan. So, um, So that's, you know, and then I actually read Diet for New America right after that in which um, then Diet for New America didn't use the word vegan, I don't think, but talked about all the issues and kind of solidified it for me that I could do this and that other people did it. And it wasn't this, um, you know, I wasn't the only person trying to figure out how to be a vegan. So then I quickly, I met some animal rights activists in Cincinnati and um, So I was aware of animal rights activism for a year, Um, but I hadn't really, I guess I hadn't talked to them about being vegan at all or nutrition. Um, But then I quickly after got involved with the animal rights community of Cincinnati, of greater Cincinnati, and that's when my activism started. And I graduated from college, um, uh, I guess I graduated later in 1989. And I became somewhat active at my college, and I was a fairly, fairly angry vegan activist. I, you know, was I convinced a lot of my friends to become vegan and vegetarian, uh, but I was, you know, like people new to the movement, just stunned that not everyone immediately went vegan as soon as they found out how animals were treated. Uh, and um, so anyway, then I. I moved back home, went to live with my parents after college and became basically a full-time activist for a few years and eventually co-founded Vegan Outreach and uh, the rest is history, I guess. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about the founding of Vegan Outreach. Like, What prompted you to 
kind of turn your activism into an official new organization? Uh, I was working with Matt Ball, who lived in Cincinnati also, and we both moved away. And so we felt like we wanted to continue working together. So we needed a, we were no longer going to look under the umbrella of the animal rights community of Cincinnati. So we created a group called Animal Liberation Action at first as the name for about the first, uh, about a year. And we found that that name was a little off-putting to people. We didn't really, I think people took it to me. We were liberating animals from labs and that sort of thing. Um, which isn't really what we meant it. We meant it more of the philosophy of animal liberation. But then I one day thought, well, the main thing we want to do is spread veganism. So maybe we should call ourselves Vegan Outreach. And, and that's when we started uh, Vegan Outreach in 1994. The first thing we did was hold banners at um, on the sides of the road. We would just find very busy intersections or highway overpasses, and we would hold a banner that said, Stop Eating Animals. And it was very confusing to people. Uh, a lot of people, maybe most, did not have any idea what we, what we were talking about. So eventually we decided that booklets were the way to go because people needed to, we needed to give people more information. Um, and so we, we created a, a booklet um, and we felt like we had some decent success with it. And so that became Vegan Outreach's thing was to create booklets. And then we also eventually realized that handing out booklets at colleges was the most efficient way to get booklets out to an audience that seemed more interested. And so then we, I went on a tour from 1995 to 97 uh, to about 246, uh, I think it was 246 colleges around the country, leafleting. Um, and after that was done, I was fairly exhausted, but we tried to encourage <laughs> We tried to encourage people to leaflet their local colleges, although I, I wasn't going to be on the road anymore. And then uh, fast forward to 2004, we hired our first person to leaflet colleges full-time. His name's John Camp. He went on to hand out a million booklets. Um, and then we started hiring many more outreach coordinators. So now we have... Um, something like 10 outreach coordinators that we pay to leaflet most of what they press as leaflet colleges, though they have other things to do as well. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how it all evolved. And we found that it's been very effective in terms of, we have, you know, a tremendous amount of anecdotal reports of people changing their diet due to our booklets. And we also have been testing, testing them lately to see it's not easy to do a real life test for the booklets, but we've been, um, we've been doing some pilot studies and, and hoping to get some good information soon. Ooh, can you, can you talk about those pilot studies a little bit? Like what, what is it sure. that you're testing and what are your methods and all of that kind of stuff? Well, we want, we want to test whether people are changing their diets from the booklets on any regular basis. I mean, we know that people do here and there because we get reports um, during the school season. We get reports just about every day that someone came across someone who was vegetarian since getting our booklet or vegan. And so, um, so we know it's, it happens, but we don't know how often. And one of my big interests is to find out if, the paid per view 
uh, method of spreading um, diet change is more effective than leafleting. So we're trying to do both and compare the results of both uh, in some way to figure out which is better. Now, some some places are just not going to be conducive to pay-per-view and leafleting is the only option. So I'm not, no matter what we find out, I don't know how much the leafleting will change, but it would change to some extent if we found out pay-per-view is much better than leafleting. What do you mean by uh, pay-per-view? Okay, so what pay-per-view is, is that you go, say to a school, you set up a table and you take a number of notebook computers and you show people, you pay them a dollar or two to watch a video. And then on how animal farm animals are treated and then if they um well well that's basically it then you give them information on how to change their diet so instead of leafleting your videos but you can't do it to for to nearly as many people and if you're paying them then there's a cost there to the to paying them although leaflet also costs so if you're say, say if you do pay-per-view with 50 to 70 people versus handing out one to three thousand booklets you know, a number of organizations do a lot of pay-per-view, and we haven't done much pay-per-view. We're doing more of it. And now there's a new type of video called virtual reality. You may know mm-hmm. this because it's all over, but and, but we've, we think that that might be an even better, more effective uh, method than just regular video. So oh. we're going to try to compare these three things. And the way we do it with leafleting is that we put stickers on the booklets that say, take a survey and get a gift certificate to, uh, you know, to whatever we decide that time. We've done Amazon and Starbucks. And so we hand out a bunch of booklets with those stickers. People take a certain amount of people take the survey. Then we follow up with them a month or two later and then see if their diet changed. And then they get the gift certificate if they if they fill out the second survey. Uh, and so we've been trying to figure out how much the gift certificate has to cost to get enough people to take the survey to have meaningful results. Um, our preliminary results have been very good in terms of the fact that when people uh, take the first survey after reading the booklet, they showed a very large interest in changing. Now, we thought that that might be due simply to the fact that people who were more interested in changing were more likely to take the survey. But we did a control group as well where they got a booklet that had nothing to do with animals, and they responded to the survey at the exact same uh, response rate. So it didn't seem to be that people who cared more about animals or were more likely to change their diet we're taking the survey more often. Um, but that's about as far as we've gotten. We, we haven't, um, we didn't get enough people taking the second survey to create statistics that were close to meaningful. And so now we're trying to, to we did a couple test uh, pilot studies on, on giving out more gift certificates. And what we're finding is that different schools around the country, it could be different states or different regions, people are much more likely to take the survey than other places is what we think we're finding. And so it's, it's, um, we still got some things to, to work out before we have good results. And every time we do this, it takes it, you know, at least three months to go through the whole process of creating the stickers and setting it up and then following up with people a month or two later to, we've been doing two months to see if their diet changes held.
that's that's really cool that you are are looking at something you've been doing for so long and are willing to be critical of of like the process that you're going through and thinking about you know what what could be you know going forward more effective you know are you looking at the content of the leaflets um, yeah we do that as well in fact i just had been right before you called me i was working on a finishing an article about a study we had compared for from bullets and um so that I'll be posting that in the Beacon Outreach blog soon. I, I don't. I'm not. Um, I've gone through all the results, but I don't know them off the top of my head to, to to say them right now. But we compared, yeah, four different booklets. We did this in a paper read, which is where you we use Amazon Turk, Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is this uh, crowdsourcing to do s- small tasks and get paid a little small amounts of money. Um, where a lot of people do surveys and things like that. And so what we did was we paid people to read a booklet, one of the booklets, and then fill out a survey. And then we came back to them uh, two months later and asked them to fill out a second survey. And so we tried to see if there were any differences between the booklets. And, um, yeah, it'd probably be better if, if anyone's interested in that to read it in the blog when it comes out because if I, if I talk about it now, it's not going to be very uh, interesting, but because <laughs> I I need the stats right in front of me. But, um, yeah. It, so we are we are doing that. We're trying to compare what's the the most effective message as well as the f- most effective forum for prevent promo, uh, presenting the message. Mm-hmm. That's it's also really cool that you are looking to new technology and looking to this virtual reality option as well. Like, have you had any? like anecdotal response to that like what are people hearing from the the students who are you know putting on the you know the box or whatever it is and really experiencing you know what are you showing them and then how are they responding you know we don't have a lot of uh experience with coming back to people and hearing about what they thought about the video because we haven't because leafleting is the main thing we've done, and we've done it to so many people. But the the video watching, ha- we haven't done much of it. For one thing, groups that have our farm a- farm animal rights movement, uh, Mercy for Animals used to do a lot of it. I don't know how much they do these days, and um, I don't know if any other groups are doing a whole lot of the video. Um, the Humane League leaflets also, they might do the video, but I'm not sure. And so. And then Animal Equality has been the only group that's done the, much of the virtual reality, to my knowledge. Uh, they're the only ones with that have actually taken footage. Um, it's very difficult to take footage with a virtual reality camera because the cameras are very large and you basically have to get permission to go into a factory farm or slaughterhouse and, and videotape because there's no way you can just sneak in and... Uh, yeah, with the giant... I mean, I guess I guess you could break in in the middle of the night, but you you can't you can't trick them into letting you in, it, it, you know, as though you don't have a camera or anything like that. So it's very bulky, is my understanding. I actually I've seen it, and it is quite the one I saw was quite large. It's like pushing a small lawnmower, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh wow! You got you got to push it along the ground. Yeah. This is my memory of it. It's been a while since I saw the footage of it. So. Um, so yeah, I don't know what those groups have experienced in terms of, um, feedback. 
I know Farm was trying to test for feedback, and I don't know how successful they were at it. I never saw any published results. Um, we have done one follow-up study. I'm sorry. We've done now three different follow-ups for three different schools. And the first follow-up we was very good. We got a good response rate. It was, I think, Georgetown University and maybe old, and I think Old Dominion, both in uh, Old Dominion in Virginia. I guess Georgetown is in D.C. Um, and that their the response was not. We we you know we had to, we started off with only about 120 people, and because you just you can't give out nearly you can't do nearly as many pay-per-view as you do leaflets. Um, so instead of handing out a thousand stickers, we we only could do a hundred videos, and so then the response to the follow-up was only about fifty percent. So we only had fifty people, so the the results weren't we couldn't get statistical meaningfulness out of it. But we can we, we intend to continue to combine the responses for each one we do. But then we did a school in Sacramento and we got no response at all. And I don't know if it's because school's out for the summer, so the students just aren't doing their email or what. But I was really surprised because. I conducted that pay-per-view myself, and I, the students seemed very, very interested and engaged with the videos. Uh, so I expected, if, you know, I didn't know if they would change their diet at all, but I definitely thought that they would respond at least at 50% like the other universities, but we didn't get a single one responding. So we have to figure out a better way to do that as well. We might have to give gift certificates to get them to fill out the second, uh, the follow-up survey. And who is doing this evaluation? Are you guys doing it internally, or are you have you contracted uh, out for yeah. the analysis? No, we don't contract out for it. But we have a statistician that is—I um, mean, he's you know he's involved with vegan outreach. He's a friend of mine. He works for the state of California and the Department of Childhood uh, Disease, and he does epidemiology. So he's pretty—he's pretty knowledgeable about biostatistics, and he's. He doesn't uh, – um, I trust that – I don't think that he comes in with um, much bias. I, half the time he doesn't really even know what we're doing. He just kind of <laughs> crunches the stats for us. Um, but no, I don't – I think farming it out would be – I don't – um, it's just not something we've done because we have a statistician to do it for free. I would imagine mm -hmm. it would be quite expensive to pay someone. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, I kind of bring that up because I know that, um, so I actually found you through your RD blog, through your nutrition writing and not through vegan outreach. Um, and so I, one of the things that I have admired about your nutrition work is that you, you really focus on using reputable sources, um, and using, using yes. like the science that is coming out of what the what the entire world would call science. Um, right. And, and so I was wondering how that, you know, I'm sure I, I was hoping that that was playing into how you were doing your analysis for your outreach, but you know, for seeing, you know, our, seeing that there. Our outreach, the, the analysis we're doing is, is mostly for people involved with our organization and not necessarily, um, I mean, the nutrition is a little bit different, uh, but it's for, you know, the analysis of the advocacy is for our use. You know, I'm not trying to prove to the whole world anything about what we do. So it's got to be good enough that we think it's reliable 
but um, I don't need a university to put their their stamp on it because I don't, you know, I just don't need that. Um, whereas with nutrition, if, if a university isn't doing a study, then you can't really trust it. Uh, so, but I don't, maybe there doesn't seem to be any difference there, but there is one to me. I, I it's, it's just, it's a, it's a different thing. At, le- at least you can understand how, you know, statistical power works and how, you know, how to make a study really robust. Even if you're using it internally, you, you can apply the knowledge that you have from reading all of these other studies to, to be able to interpret the data in a way, you, you know, you are no, saying, I agree you know, you're, the, the way that you're talking about this leads me to believe that you are being thoughtful about the statistical analysis part of it as well. Yes. Yes. I thank you for, for noticing that. I, I, for years we resisted doing studies about leafleting effectiveness because we felt as though it was just too, too fraught with, with problems and it could lead us to the, the wrong result. So now that we've been doing it and we've been working on this now for, um, it'll be, I guess, close to maybe a year that we started seriously talking about it, which I guess hasn't been that long. I feel like it's been much longer, <laughs> but, um, but you know, we, we took a lot of time to try to do it in a way that we're not going to get uh, bad information because you know, st- studies like this can give, for example, if you, if you go to, to meat eaters and ask them what, what they want in a booklet of ours, you are, in my, my opinion's always been, you're going to get, you're going to end up with the thing that's going to least likely get them to change. First of all, they're always going to tell you that they want to hear about health and they want a real, you know, pleasant uh, message. And that just isn't, that isn't the motivating thing for at least what we're trying to accomplish. We find that, that people are, you know, a lot of people do come to the diet from health. And probably the older people are, the more likely that is to be the case, that they will have come to it through health. And then some of them come around to uh, caring about the animals. But we feel as though the people who are committed to animals are, are much more committed to the lifestyle and the diet. And so, um, and uh, I can't remember exactly where I was going with that, something about asking mediators what they're interested in. You know, it's just asking them what they think about what you're doing is generally not the way. People don't know why they change, and they don't want to change. And so when you ask them, hey, can you tell us what you think about this? Generally, I, I don't find those to be very. If any, they can give you the complete opposite results, is what I'm trying to say. So, of what is really truly effective. So, um, people generally don't want to say, "If you make me really uncomfortable, I'll do this thing that I don't want to do." Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, nobody is going to ever say, "I would like to be made uncomfortable with my current choices and be forced exactly. be forced to think about whether or not I'm actually living ethically." Exactly. It seems unlikely that anybody would respond that way. Right, right. So it means doing the, these prospective follow-up studies and trying to, you know, getting people to follow, fill out surveys is not always the easiest thing in the world to do. And so we're, um, hopefully we'll have a, a way to do it soon that, that we find reliable and that doesn't cost an outrageous amount. Um, so we'll see. And it's probably too early for you to really know the answer to this, but 
you know, are you thinking about how you can adjust either your message or your strategies based on what you learn? Well, you know, the, the preliminary data w- w- has been very positive, at least in terms of the people filling out the survey. They seem very interested in, you know, they, they, they report being more sympathetic to farm animals, wanting to cut back on their diet. Now, this is before we give them a chance to do it. Um, and so it, the results were actually quite a bit better than what I had expected. Uh, uh, I expected your average person to say um, that they don't care and that they don't want to cut back on animal products. But it, at least all, close to half of them said they did want to. Now, whether the, the, the segment of people that fill out a survey, uh, including the c- control people, are more likely to want to change um, than people who don't fill out surveys, I think that there's probably something there that you're just people who are more engaged with, you know, their, the world around them and wanting to and caring about it are more likely to fill out a survey. Well, on the other hand, we thought, well, maybe just people with, with less money or who, who who find $5 valuable might want to fill out the survey. Um, uh, so you, I guess you never really know um, but what's causing people to fill out the survey. But um, right now we don't have enough info to, to, to determine it. You know, in terms of so like I said, I, I'm trying to compare video to leafleting because those are two ways that you can that our movement can do a lot of outreach and that our organization can do a lot of outreach and reach a lot of people. Um, other than that, there's not, you know, other than online stuff, there's not a whole lot of other options. And if we were to determine that, you know, leafleting nor videos make any difference, um, I guess we would be left with not a whole, I mean, I'd feel somewhat frustrated because you, you would think, well, then what can we do? Maybe nothing. But, um, and I've always kind of felt like, you know, leafleting has been criticized by certain people ever since I started doing it as being, you know, we can never change everyone. They're, you know, we're always looking for the lowest hanging fruit. But I've always felt like if we can't take our message directly to people and persuade some segment of them, then what hope do we have? So I guess I am fairly invested in the idea that, that you know, video might be better or leafleting might be better, but some way of getting people the message is what we need to be doing. Um, so. And do uh, you have, do you have plans to make the results public, even if it's not, you know, a peer reviewed published kind of thing? Yes. Yes. I, that's what my article is going to be on. I, I mean, on the paper, well, I was talking about the paper read there, but I'm going to make that uh, public. That's um, great. So, so you know, like regardless of what you, what changes, if anything, about vegan outreach's strategy, other people can look at that data and or those data and say, you know, here is another piece of information about what is effective, um, right, right? And it can contribute to kind of the greater conversation, right? Um, Mercy for Animals recently did a study and I think they found I don't remember if it was statistically significant but they found that the people who watched a video were eating more animal products when they followed up with them versus the people who, did the, who didn't watch the video and um, I need to look that up and, and reread that because um, it was so surprising and I don't remember the details exactly but 
you know, in that time, I don't think anyone has stopped. Just no one has. Just, I think all that was online videos. I'm pretty sure, but and I don't think it was ads, know. wasn't it, or something? It was like okay, not. So it, was it wasn't ads, even an opt-in kind of thing. It was just like there, or maybe autoplay. I, I don't remember well, the details sure they, either. They they watched the video, right? If they clicked on the ad, then yeah, they watched so. the video. Yeah. So it almost, but I don't think that they took the results of that and decided we are done with video. We're not going to do video anymore because it's causing people to eat more animal products. So, you know, it's, it is kind of a, um, a, you know, it can, it can provide surprising results and results that we don't want to believe and that maybe we shouldn't believe. Cause I tend to, I tend to think that's crazy. There's too much good that's been happened. That's happened because of videos. I mean, I don't know if videos are the most online videos are the most effective thing, and, and they may or may not be, but they certainly seem to have done overall net good. Um, well, and if we think about these kinds of studies as the beginning of a more rigorous scientific look at advocacy, trusting one study is not enough. We wouldn't ever do right. that in something like nutrition. And so we shouldn't do it with advocacy either. We're just building up an evidence base for right. what all of these different organizations are doing. And hopefully everybody is using sound methodological principles and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, the more the more evaluation that happens, the better everybody can get, at least in my idealized world of yeah. activism. Right. I mean, there's also the, the fact that things change over time. You know, our paper read this this round seemed to do a lot better than the one we published in 2014 in terms of diet change. And, you know, that could be a function of simply people are more ready now to change their diet than they were even two years ago. Um, yeah, without doing like a really long, you know, 10-year longitudinal study, it's going to be really hard yeah. to to capture that kind of change, the kind of... The, right. the constant, it, you know, just like vegan being more acceptable now than it right. was tw in 2014, you can't quantify that. Right. It is, it's, you know, there's a lot of variables that make things dif difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so I do actually, I want to ask you about your um, being a dietitian and how that all fits into this and, and your like side projects putting, right. you know, vegan health information or nutrition information in ways out there in ways that people can actually understand. Um, so when did you become an RD? 2001. I, um, after I did my touring from 95 to 97, I felt like I ran into too many people that were struggling to be vegan or vegetarian and saying that they didn't feel healthy. So I decided that, um, it would be good for me to understand nutrition from a scientific perspective. So I went to school. I didn't go with the under the illusion that everything they say is right in in the academic world, but I wanted to at least find out what the science was. Um, and then, and the interesting thing is, once you get out of RD school, that was when my education really started. Uh, then it took reading hundreds and hundreds of papers to understand, you know, to become, you know, it's one thing to know what people are saying and what the textbooks say. And then it's another thing to actually have a, a much better working knowledge of the issues. 
And um, so, yeah, it was a long process and a lot of that, uh, a lot of the information about, so I tried to basically read all, all the studies that have been done on vegetarian nutrition, or at least, you know, that were, that were relevant, somewhat relevant. And, um, my main goal was to help people that, I guess I had two goals. One was to help people that were not feeling healthy and to understand why they weren't and to see if there was anything we could do. And then the other was to, to try to provide, uh, accurate information, uh, to, uh, to people, uh, and for the movement to provide accurate information, because I, I felt, you know, I, I feel as though our movement has a number of memes about nutrition that we promote that uh, don't strike me as being. They're not scientifically backed up, and some of it is fairly. Some of it's just not backed up. I mean, I don't know if it's even if it's true or not, because we just don't know. But like, like what? What's an example of that? Well, how much cancer a vegan diet prevents? We just don't know how much. Two big studies have come out showing that a vegan diet lowers the risk of cancer from about 15 to 20 percent. Um, and that doesn't, that's not as powerful as what you would think <laughs> if you listen to the vegan propaganda. Um, but it is something. Type 2 diabetes is, is one where I feel as though a vegan diet has a, a great advantage over a non-vegan diet. Uh, and that's been shown in both prospective studies and in clinical trials. Um, but another one that, that really is a problem is that talking about osteoporosis as a disease of, of too much animal protein and the idea that calcium doesn't prevent osteoporosis. And when you're talking about average calcium intakes of your typical American, which are 800 to 1,000 milligrams a day, adding calcium on top of that, I agree, does not do anything. But when you're talking about vegan diets that can be, on average, uh, 500 milligrams or below, then it calcium does become an issue. And you do need calcium to build strong bones and maintain strong bones. So vegans moving their calcium intake from 500 to 700 milligrams, I think is a real important thing that our movement is paying absolutely no attention to. Um, and then there's vitamin B12. And, um, and so that's another concern is B12. Now our, I think us vegans for the most part understand the need to take vitamin B12 I'm not 100% sure of that, but at least animal activists seem to be, except for those who refuse to believe it. And um, and there are those out there, and some are very vocal. Uh, and unfortunately, people are following some of them. But, um, you know, vitamin B12 is, both of those nutrients are, they're a real inconvenience, let's say. <laughs> they are not, they have not made our job of spreading veganism much easier and I certainly wish that it was not the case uh, that we needed to pay attention to those, but um, we do and, and we have to face that. So, for example, if we're going to decide, you know, we should export veganism to impoverished countries who have no access to vitamin B12, well, that, that presents a problem. And um, so, I mean, that's maybe where the biggest problem lies. If you're not, if you're in the in the 
in the United States, you can easily get B12 from either fortified foods or supplements, but and it's not expensive. It's a lot harder when there is no vitamin B12 supplements around or fortified foods. But yet I feel like we as a movement kind of go, you know, we push push right ahead saying plants provide everything you need. Um, what do you think the the motivation is for people just not believing that they need to supplement specifically B12, which we... Which, which my well, understanding is that it's pretty clear that, that that's not something that we can get just from plant foods. Right. Um, motivation, part of it is that, you know, B, vitamin B12 doesn't, deficiency doesn't happen fast. So, you know, if you've been a meat eater most of your life, you're going to have a store of B12 for quite a while, and you're not going to know that you're becoming slowly but surely deficient. So... If someone says to you, you need to take B12, you're going to, you might very well say, what? No, I don't. I haven't taken it in, in two or three years and I'm fine. Or some people might say eight years and they're fine. You don't, you know, and people don't need to take it till they need to take it in terms of at least how they feel. Then as soon as someone feels like really bad, then, oh, B12, I'll take it. So a lot of people go through this, this, you know, series of, of events of, not believing you need it, and then one day coming down with problems, and then suddenly they realize, okay, I do need it. I think that there is, you know, it's not, it's not good, it's not easy marketing to talk about the need for B12 and veganism. It's, it's a problem. Um, so people don't want to talk about it, which is understandable. Um, and then let's see. So I guess that's it. You know, there's there's people who really believe we don't need it, and then there's people who just don't want to talk about it because it's inconvenient. Uh, and and I, you know, if someone goes a few months without it, they're going to be fine. I mean, you don't you don't need to present it so much to new vegans right away. Uh, it very rarely would that be an issue for someone um, where a few weeks of no B12 is going to be affect them. But I'd say within a within a year, most vegans are going to be in the deficiency range where it could be um, starting to cause slight harm to them that over time can grow. And grow into some pretty serious neurological yeah, issues. Get, oh, yeah. If you get full-blown vitamin B12 deficiency, well, for one, it can kill you, but usually you're going to catch it before that happens. But yeah, you can get serious problems uh, from it. And so um, most, most vegans catch it. You know, as soon as you start feeling tingling in your fingers or toes and think, well, what's up with this? You know, well, then you probably go online and find out, oh, that's what it is. <laughs> so you, you take care of it. But And I know lots of vegans like that. And luckily, no no significant harm was probably done. So the moral of the story is you do need to supplement with B12. And, yes. And there's lots of information out there about how to do that effectively. Exactly. So um, before I let you go, how can people find either information about B12 and vegan nutrition or about vegan outreach? Like where can they find all of your stuff? Uh, veganhealth.org is where you can find my nutrition information. And I have a blog at jacknorrisrd.com. I haven't made a post in a while because I've been so busy with all this assessing leafleting and stuff. But 
um, I hopefully will be posting again soon. And then veganoutreach.org is where you can find out all about vegan outreach and our and leafleting. You can get leaflets and you can find out how to start doing outreach in your community. And I will say one thing about leafleting is after you've done it, after you go to a college and leaflet for an hour, um, you typically will feel really good afterwards because you'll be surprised at how many people are excited to get the information and um, and thrilled that a vegan is there handing out info. So I highly encourage you trying it, especially if you're someone who sits around thinking, I sure wish there were more vegans in the world. Mm. This, is, this is one way to, to help uh, make you feel better about that. And then you guys also have a lot of other resources on your website, right? Yep. Any anyone making the, the transition, we have a lot of, or just interested in vegan food. We have a, a blog. Vegan Outreach has a blog, and we have a you know recipes every, um, every twice a week at least. We put out new recipes, product reviews, um, interesting stories, uh, articles about what, how you can be vegan in various parts of the country, um, info on our activism, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's a great website with tons of information on it i was looking i I think it's maybe it's on vegan health that there's a whole list of all of these vegan kids yes that's veganhealth.org yeah and and that was really cool because vegan children is kind of a you know everybody is very concerned about raising a child as vegan and so it's cool to see all of these adorable little fat babies who have been vegan since before they were born um Yes. Growing up to be, you know, healthy kids. And it's somewhat proof that you don't need animal products to become a full-grown human. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. It was, it's a fun, it's a fun part of the website that I enjoyed oh, seeing. Like, there was one little kid with, like, a baseball cap on backwards, and I was oh, like, yeah, that right. is the, that is the cutest little vegan baby. I'm into that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, thank you for, thank you for talking with me, and, um sharing all of this cool information about your evaluation and nutrition and all of this great stuff. No problem. Thanks for asking me about it. So uh, I really appreciate it. The fourth annual Philadelphia Podcast Festival is happening this year on August 19th through 28th. More than 30 of Philly's premier podcasts will record free live shows at Tattooed Mom, Amalgam Comics and Coffee House, and other venues across the city. Check out the full schedule and learn about our sponsors and partners at phillypodfest.com and on Facebook and Twitter. See you at the festival. Tegan Goes Vegan is found at tegangoesvegan.com, on Twitter at tegangoesvegan, on Pinterest at tegangoesvegan, the show is produced by Tegan and Nathan Karuna, with music by Amanda D'Amato. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a rating or a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show more easily. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back soon with more great vegan conversations.